been quite a while since y'all have stayed up during a sermon. So I'm excited, and some of you are terrified. I'll try and turn. If, if I don't turn around every once in a while, somebody snap at me to remind me that you're there. Hello, everybody. Good morning. We are in the third of a four-part series on community, on being church together. The first week, we, uh, we started out in Romans 12, and we've actually read the entirety of Romans 12 each week, and we'll do so one more time at the end. Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about our stuff, we'll talk about money, talk about generosity, about stewardship, about why we pass a plate around, about uh, what we do with our money, the stuff that's really closest to us. I also recognize at the start here that we just gave a bunch of kids money, and if your kids are anything like my kids, that sort of thing carries with it a, a tight hold. This is my money. I got some money. And our kids are pretty selfless. They'll hand it out, if, but, but it is a sense that like now it's theirs and they own it. So parents out there, you've got a child or a couple of kids at home that have a couple of extra dollars this week. Uh, I'll say it's up to you to help shepherd them along and how to deal with that. You get to have conversations with them about what it means to, to hold on to something, to watch over it, but to give it away again. And how that giving, handing over, holding loosely and lightly might in fact bring joy and thankfulness to their lives. It's a high task, and it's one that will probably call for you your own kind of inner searching about, well, you know, Junior's now got $2. By the way, none of our kids' names are Junior, but it seemed right for the moment. Uh, And I have X amount of dollars. Let me help them, and in the process, you will find yourself helped as well. I'm going to ask if we start with a prayer, and then we will open our Bibles together. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that we would have open ears and open hearts, open minds for what you would teach us today, that we would not hold any part of ourselves back from this morning's worship, but in fact, we would bring all of ourselves forward. We don't always know what that means, and so we pray that you would guide us along the way. Place our very lives in the midst of your word and guide us along the way. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask that you turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Ha! That's a true question. That's true. We are turning to Leviticus. You thought you were out of Leviticus after a year ago, but you're not. We're going to start, you see your sermon title here, uh, Being Church, 3 of 4, Corbin Revisited. Does anyone remember this Hebrew word, Corbin? I expect all hands to go up. It's from... Sermon series on Leviticus? No? It's not ringing any bells? There he is. Harold, of course you do, because you're our language expert in the room. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and we're going to talk about this Hebrew word, korban, which is the word for sacrifice. It's the word that gets keyed off on in Romans 12 when Paul speaks. But the beginning of, of Leviticus. And as a reminder, Leviticus is seen by uh, Jewish people as, well, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Leviticus is one of those books that we sort of scoot past really quickly because it's so strange. But for a good Jew, Leviticus sort of stands in the center of the most important section of books. 
Those first five books, the Torah, and Leviticus is like the crown. It's the crescendo, which is a very different way of understanding Leviticus than maybe we live into it. So we're going to read the first couple of verses of this incredibly important and strange book. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. That's all we're going to read for right now. The first long section of the book of Leviticus is a detailing out of all of the different offerings that you would bring to the temple. And the word offering or sacrifice is this word korban. I want you to remember it, and if not, I want you to learn it today. It's a simple word, but it is, its layers of depth go down pretty far. So at its root, the word korban has this verb karav in it. And that word means to bring something near. So, you know, you've got your notebooks over there. And if, I, if this karavit, then you're going to bring that over to me. Something that was far away is brought near. If the word karav turns into a noun in the Hebrew language, it means the innermost part or, or what's in your midst or quite literally your guts or your entrails. And so when this is the word that gets used in the Hebrew language to to talk about sacrifice, what's being said in that word korban is that when you bring a sacrifice to the temple, you are not bringing a bull or an ox or a bird. You are, in fact, bringing part of yourself. You You bring to the altar that which is most near and dear to you. And in doing so, you end up actually bringing yourself. Now, there are, there are two ways to understand sacrifice. The first way, which is the ancient way of understanding it, in fact, the pagan way of understanding it, the way that the Jewish people cut against when they developed their own understanding of sacrifice, is that you sacrifice as sacrifice to the gods or to God out of fear. Fear that I've done something wrong or lots of something's wrong. And the way to make God not kill me is I give something away. It's done in fear. It's done in concern. It's done so that God doesn't, will dole out punishments to you. What this kind of sacrifice and this kind of motivation does, though, is it serves to uh, push the one giving the offering far away, because that God is terrifying. And that kind of giving is not something that is given freely, but it is a coerced kind of gift. But there's another way to understand sacrifice, and it's the one that we encounter in the book of Leviticus. And it's that your gift, your offering, is not given out of fear of what God might do to you, but it is given in response to what God has already done for you. It's a gift that's given not in fear, but in, in love and in gratitude. And that kind of gift, well, it creates bonds of attachment and connection. I just did my taxes yesterday. Has anyone else done their taxes yet or started their taxes? Do you get like a warm, fuzzy connection with the IRS? <laughs> When you send them, I remember when I did mine yesterday and I I pressed send because I do it on the computer now, uh, and it said my audit risk was very low. And even still, 
you know, there was like a centimeter between no audit risk and very low. And I thought, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm not going to get in trouble. But I do have that sense that whenever I pay my taxes and I do that, that is, an, that is done in sort of in fear, not in love. Now, maybe some of you do pay your taxes in love for the greater good and for public schools and for, you know, roads that work and for, but I'm not that holy. <laughs> if you are, then you can come talk to me. I, uh, I heard a story from a friend whose parent went to another church in the area. And this is a church that sort of undergirds a lot of what they do with fear. God is terrifying all the time, scary, and after you. And your job is to get on the right side of God's good graces. And so one of the things that they talked about in this church is that you would give. And the reason that you would give is because if you give, then God will bless you. And if you don't give, then what happens? Not good things. This is a pretty popular understanding of generosity and blessing and gratitude. But something happened in this person's life at this church, and it was that one of her relatives got cancer. And she didn't understand why it had happened. Because she had been giving to the church. So the, the ministers at this church said, well, you know, just more faith, more faith more money, and then they kept giving, and well, the relative died from complications from their cancer. And, uh, and so this, this woman was left with the question of, what did I do wrong, or how did I upset God? And the pastor, ever the wise pastor, said, well, you just you didn't have enough faith, and you weren't generous enough. Everyone have a collective mouth vomit moment. But this is really common. And it's not fringe churches where this sets in. It's, it's somewhere deep inside of us still, even still. Giving these kids these $2 bills... It's a challenge to them to remember that it was given to them as a gift from the outside. And then when they hand that back over, that the gift keeps moving. There's this phrase that uh, you're not allowed to say anymore, but people still use it, which is uh, if calling somebody an Indian giver. Is anyone familiar with this term? And uh, I remember... You know, when I was younger hearing it, I probably used it at some point. Uh, and it's a terrible, terrible phrase. In part, though, because it gets wrong everything about gift and property in these small, traveling, tribal cultures. So, for instance, this is the story. This is how it gets set up. You've got a, uh, a group of native peoples in a land. We could say that land is, oh, I don't know, Oklahoma. And... Uh, and wanders in foreign people who have their own sense of property and possessions. And the practice with this tribal group is that 
a way to show hospitality and to join in and invite another group of outsiders inside your community, even for a brief period of time, is to share something with them. So maybe it was a pipe to smoke tobacco, and this is a pipe that had been carved, carved from some sort of soft red stone. And as a gift, the chief would, would then give the pipe over to these visitors, these white guests of theirs, because that's what you would do. It didn't actually belong to that group of folks. It it belonged to a large network that was bound together, and bound together not by holdings of private property and these governing laws and legislatures, but bound by these interrelational dynamics that held them together. And gift-giving was one of the things that kept cohesion. But you're this visitor, and you don't know this is the rule about gifts, and so you take the pipe and you think, the British Museum is going to love this artifact. And so you set it up on the mantle, and you preserve it. You put it under glass, and then months go by, and maybe a year goes by, and the leaders from this tribe come visit you, and, and they see the pipe there, and they think, you should offer that back to me. You should offer that back to someone else. The gift, the gift that had moved has stopped. I read somewhere, well, not somewhere, in this book right here, uh, the opposite of an Indian giver is a white man keeper. <laughs> Which I liked. It's a different understanding of property, of possessions. There is a difference between a gift and private property. And it's a difficult thing to manage. But when the assumption is that that, that artifact, that, that pipe goes from, it belongs to all of us, and it moves as a way of binding us one to another in hospitality and relationship to, well, I got myself a little, a little trinket, and now it's mine. That mine changes, changes the very essence of the gift into something else. It removes it from circulation and love and charity and turns it into a cold and a dead object. The gift must move to remain a gift. This is the point of the $2 bill. It it needs to move. If it stops at all of those kids, then whatever kind of energy it possesses in its blessedness, and our resources are blessedness to be used for the healing of the world, but if, if we shut it down, then the life from that gift, well, it starts to diminish. This is the knowledge, the intimate knowledge that a gift-giving culture understands, that a, that a culture built on accumulation of wealth will never understand. The way to preserve your own life in these tribal cultures were to be connected one to another, to not be isolated out in the middle of nowhere without your people. To be secure in a land like ours is to have the most stuff so that you don't need anybody else. I have a friend who uh, shared a story with me recently about how when she was younger, and she had her kids who are now grown were young, uh, they were at family's house for Christmas. And they got a call while they were at their family's house. And the person said, your house is on fire. 
And she didn't quite understand, so she asked for some clarity. Wait, did you say that, that my brother's house is on fire down the street? No, your house is burning right now. And so they hop in the car and they drive out and they see, in fact, that their house is completely gone. I mean, the kind of fire that seems like it started right in the center of the house and it dropped down and spread underneath and was fed in just a perfect way by enough oxygen to be a boiler of a fire. Everything gone. She said she sat there in the yard and watched the flames take everything that she owned with her kids with her. And uh, so they didn't lose anyone in the fire. They just lost everything. And... So right now, this seems like a tragic story as she's telling it. But then she keeps going, and she says that immediately the local church starts to take up donations for everything that they had begun to lose. And it just pours in. And not just money, but clothes because it was winter and the kids needed jackets again and food. And then she would come home sometimes, and on the front door was just an envelope that was taped there that just would have a wad of cash in it. And this, was, this became her life. This community that loved her surrounded her. They would be in the grocery store, and they'd go to check out, and then somebody would just pay their tab. And so she, what she did was she started making a list of everything that she received and kept a pretty detailed log of it. And she said the reason she did was so that she could, she could tithe back to the church a tenth of everything that she received. And folks asked her, Kids asked her, we don't have any, we've lost everything. How can, you, how can you give any of this away? And she said, we have everything that we need. And we will have everything that we need. I remember reading a lot this last week, and maybe you did too, about the psychology behind incredibly large lottery buckets, prizes, grand prizes. You know that the National Lottery Powerball got up to what, like $1.59 billion, I think, at the end there? And all of a sudden, everybody's buying lottery tickets, even people who never purchase lottery tickets, uh, there is a reason we gave the kids $2 bills and it wasn't unintentional. You could go and spend it on a lottery ticket. And again, please do not. Uh, the last two weeks leading up to the, when the uh, Wednesday, when they finally had winners, three different ticket holders won, uh, Oklahoma, just our state, spent $29 million on the lottery. We could do that game in this room. We could all write down on a piece of paper how much we each individually spent on lottery tickets, and then we could combine it and figure out what did... By the way, nobody won in Oklahoma. And we might could have a conversation about tax revenue and and spending and education, those sort of things, but I don't want to do that. So I came across an article that was trying to understand why we are so susceptible to the lottery, particularly because... A lot of people can do math, simple math, to figure out what the odds would be that you would win. Uh, The woman in charge, state to state, who's in charge of growing lotteries, and she's really good at it, uh, she knows what we want and what we need. And this is a line from the article I read. It said, the lottery, it's a game where reason and logic are rendered obsolete. 
and hope and dreams are on sale. I remember thinking, driving around, what would I do with that many millions of dollars? And I immediately grew very concerned if I were to ever win that amount of money. Because I know that I'm not good with the thousands of dollars that God's given me now. And it's not like getting a bunch of money all of a sudden would change my heart. There, there is a danger in where you... Where your hopes and your dreams lie is where your devotion lies. Where your devotion is is where you will worship. Where we will worship. Where we will bow down. Where we will pay and sacrifice. A lottery ticket's a kind of sacrifice to maybe get to some greater good at the other side. And this isn't a, a conversation and a sermon about why you shouldn't buy lottery tickets. It's about where your hopes lie. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of what God has done, to offer your bodies, your very being, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. So what has God done for you, for us, or for me? What are these mercies that Paul speaks of that are supposed to elicit from us laying down our own lives? Just before chapter 12, the end of chapter 11, there's a doxology, this section Starting in verse 33, it says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The riches in this story are wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of God's mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, not because God needs you, but because you need God. We never laid bulls and rams and oxes on the fire because God needed those. This is what the prophets rail against over and over again. In fact, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, it says that when Christ lays down his body on the altar, that all of a sudden that guilt that we kept trying to fix over and over again was done away with. There was finally a sacrifice once for all, and we didn't have to do that anymore. Because all along, our sin or our guilt or our shame, it moves us further and further away from God. And the offerings, the sacrifices, this bringing near of ourselves to God was always to get us back. And Christ fixed that problem, closed the gap. Hebrews 10, just listen to what it says. 
It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And a little later, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had sacrificed and offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You may feel far away from God. If you're paying attention, at some point you have felt far away from God. Sometimes so far that that God becomes that kind of abstract idea that you debate with yourself in the middle of the night, whether God's even real or not. Some of you know deep down in your bones, of course God is present, but God just sure doesn't seem for me right now. And I don't know what to do to close that distance because when I pray, it comes back empty. But writer of Hebrews would say that what Christ has done has closed that gap. And yet Paul says that we're to offer our bodies as a sacrifice. You turn in Ephesians 5. I was wondering this week, if Christ has offered the sacrifice once for all, then why is Paul asking us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? If God doesn't need this, the blood of goats and bulls, it doesn't do anything for sin. Christ did all that work. What are we doing? Why sacrifice? Follow God's example, chapter 5 in Ephesians. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved. So walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christ, and this sacrifice that makes a way back to God, was the pattern. Christ shows us how to live. And in that sacrifice, in that offering, we figure out the pattern for our own lives. It would be really simple and clean if the answer to this sermon was everybody in the room who's not giving a tenth of their income to the church should do so because it's your spiritual duty as a member of this church and as a follower of Christ. It would be a really clean and simple sort of sermon and everyone could check off on a box whether or not they were actually doing it. But the New Testament doesn't talk about that. It says to give generously. This idea of this tenth that's set aside could let us think at the end of the day that this tenth is for God and this 90% is all mine to keep. And all your kids are going to take that $2 bill and they're going to draw out a line and they're going to figure out what a tenth would look like and they're going to cut it off and they're going to hand that back. And they're going to say, this is all that belongs to someone else and this other part is mine. But it is all, it is all in and through and for God, all things, all things. Not that 10%, but this whole 
other section over here. Not just this part of your life, but your whole being. Not just the part of you that operates on Sundays between 9.30 and 12 o'clock, but the totality of your life is to be a sacrifice. It was never about the bulls. It was always about you. God does not care about your money. The church does not need your money. We will be okay. You need to be close to God. And for many of us, it is our wallets that stand right there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Over and over again in this chapter in Romans, it talks about gifts. Everybody's been given a set of gifts, and you've been given gifts to the measure that's appropriate for you, and you've been given a set of gifts, and you've been given a set of gifts. So steward them well, and don't think too highly of yourself. Because you have a portion, and you have a portion, and you have a portion, and you have a portion. The word there for gift is the word charis, which means grace. We call ourselves a place of grace, or a place full of the gifts of God that have been given to us. The idea of a grace or gift is that it's not anything that we earned. It's just something that we were given, something that we receive. Paul in Romans says, your very life is a gift or a grace. The word gratitude, we get that word from the word gracia in the Latin, which means a grace. Rooted in this idea of gift or grace is this idea of thankfulness. Does everybody know what the word Eucharist means? Eucharist is the fancy word, the Greek word for the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. And what it actually means in the Greek is the meal of thanksgiving. Or or you means a good, and then charis, it's right there in the middle of the word Eucharist, is a grace. This is the good grace or the good gift that God has given us and Jesus Christ shed for us right here, right here, all the time on offer. Here's the thing, though. When you take it and you eat it, You enter into that story of Christ's sacrifice and offering, and you say that you are willing to be broken and poured out. The gift always moves. If we have, in fact, been saved by the work of Christ, we have stepped into a different kind of currency, into a different kind of grace or charis or gift, and it's one that we didn't do a thing to earn. Our only job is to be thankful. Gratitude, in fact, is the mark of a true follower of Christ. Karl Barth, great German theologian, he says, to believe in Jesus Christ means to become thankful. Thankful in all circumstances. I turned on the radio this morning on the way to church, and uh, there was an interview on one station between this priest and the woman, and he was talking about thankfulness. I didn't write the sermon between that conversation in the car, the radio, and here. It just was a nice coincidence. Uh, And he said, the good reminder, that, that thankfulness is not contingent on what's happening. There are always opportunities to be thankful or to be cynical and to grumble. Our lives are mixed bags, aren't they? 
Gratitude is something that we cultivate. In gratitude, we start to let go of that which we've clenched so tight to us. In thankfulness, we realize that our very lives are a gift to be stewarded. So here's the, here's the question or the challenge for us as we leave today. What are you thankful for in your life? What has God done or given you? It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be some grand, this is what opened the floodgates of gratitude in your life. For instance, every single one of us woke up this morning. And if you pay attention even to that moment, it's like a little resurrection. It's a new day, and you've been washed clean and can step back out into the world fresh. God has given you another chance. Morning by morning, his mercies are new. What are you thankful for? And and if you're not, pay attention to that. If the first words out of your mouth and into the world are complaints and grumbles, be careful. C.S. Lewis tells a story in one of his books about this trip to hell or to separation from God. And along the way, there's this character who's a grumbler. And all this character does is complain and complain and complain. And someone asks about them. And the narrator says, well, right now it's just a grumble. And, And there might, in fact, be a spark of that person still there. But if that is all that that person becomes is a grumble and a grumble and a complaint, they might in fact change and become a grumbler. And there will be no them left. And then they will find themselves as far as they could be from God. To believe in Jesus Christ means to become thankful. So right now, as we move toward the choir's anthem, and our last hymn. Think about this. What are you thankful for? (laughs) Write it down somewhere. You've got an order of service, a bulletin in front of you. Grab a pen and write down what it is that makes you feel gratitude for the life that you have. (laughs) In that gratitude, might we find our generosity to share with what we've been given. Let's pray. Dear God, I am thankful for this group of people, this congregation of Spring Creek. I'm thankful for the ways that you've gifted us, each in unique ways. I'm thankful for the kids that you've gifted us with, the graces that they are in this congregation. I'm thankful for those who are wise, who have been here for a while and know the stories. I'm thankful for the water that runs behind our building that reminds us that we are a part of this creation. I'm thankful for the geese that come and visit and then head off somewhere else. I'm thankful for the folks who wander in in the middle of the week looking for some kindness and maybe find it. Thank you for what you've given us. Forgive us when we hoard it. 
when we hold tight to it in our own lives and in our corporate life together. Make us more grateful and then make us more generous. You don't need any of this, but we need to let it go. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.